Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. Turn there with me. Let's pray. Lord, as I always do, it seems so presumptuous to try to speak your word. You use vessels that are prone to error, but somehow by the miracle of preaching, you fix it. <laughs> you use it. And sometimes even if we, when we biff it, you change lives. That's what we pray for this morning, that you'll change us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, I see, uh, I think I see um, that not everybody has these, but there are ushers in the back, so they're going to just troll while I get started. Uh, you've heard me say many times, I'm a layman, <clears throat> and uh, I'm not a uh, uh, paid staff, so if I'm going to work on Sunday, so are you. So make sure you get your stuff, get your pen, get your pencil. Um, and um, so um, last week, some of you were surprised. Last week, the Christmas message was about the second coming of Christ. Um, and uh, guess what? The text from this morning for us is way more about the second coming of Christ than the first. Advent, as Pastor Ali taught, means to come or coming. And there isn't just one advent, there are actually two advents. And um, what's interesting is the um, Israel thought there was one coming. So the only advent they saw was a gigantic blowout where their big warrior king would show up restore their greatness, and they would get to run the world with him again. Now, don't be too tough on the Israelites. There's a paradox that we've actually fallen to, ironically, in the opposite direction. When they, thought, when they saw the advent coming, they thought it was what we now know as the second coming, <laughs> right? Big king comes, clears everything up, and they're in charge. Um, ironically, now, when we celebrate Advent, we think it's almost all about the first coming that they missed. It's a strange paradox, so the Israel tends to, they biffed Advent, and we're biffing Advent too. So, as you'll see, the texts from these four weeks are classic Christmas texts, <laughs> Advent texts, but the first two texts are actually mostly about the return of Christ. So, look with me at uh, Matthew Chapter three, starting with the first verse. By the way, you'll notice, John the Baptist didn't come preaching when he was in his mom's womb and Jesus was in his mom's womb, right? This is 30 years later. This is not at all a Christmas message. This is when John comes and Jesus is already 30 years old and is about to start his ministry, right? Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll see, they would have loved that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of, the, of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. So this was an exciting announcement by this prophet to the Jews of John's day. For a thousand years, really since the loss of the power after Solomon, 
The hope of Israel had been the coming of their king that would restore the nation to greatness. Um, Israel believed they would reign with this coming king. And in fact, they will someday. Sorry, I don't have time to unpack that. I'll just leave you puzzling over that. Uh, especially for the replacement uh, theologians that you've heard who've said that the church has replaced Israel because Israel blew it. Um, by the way, if, if God replaces covenants because the people aren't perfect at covenant keeping, what's gonna come after the church? We could be replaced too. So anyway, think about this. John the Baptist comes and says, behold, the kingdom of heaven is coming, the king is coming, and you know what they were thinking? This is great. He's gonna blow away the Roman Empire. We've been oppressed by every empire since Egypt. Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon. Ever take World Civ? All of those, they all oppressed the Jews. And then after Babylon came Greece, and after Greece came Rome, and now they've had Rome all these years, and so they're thinking, this is great. We're gonna dominate the world again. So, here's the historical Hebrew understanding, and here's your first blanks. When Israel heard that the king was coming, they thought it meant that their suffering would end and their enemies would finally get what was coming to them. Advent. My suffering ends and my enemies get what's coming to them because I know God and I'm God's people and they aren't. Now, don't be so hard on them, right? The the prophets talked off and turned me to Ezekiel 38. Uh, I'll uh, give the prep to this as you're turning there. So find Psalms in the middle, turn to the right three or four, and you get to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. So it's the fourth of the five major prophets, just a bit to the right of the middle, and the 38th chapter of Ezekiel. And as I always tell you when we're in the major prophets, if you get lost in names that you don't remember seeing for a long time, you're in the minor prophets, turn back to the left, you'll bump into Daniel. Just keep going left. So um, this is at a time when Ezekiel clearly is looking forward to the day of the Lord at the end, what is still for us yet future, at the end, and there's this incredibly powerful, dominant, horrific world leader, and his name is Gog, G-O-G, okay? So look with me, starting with verse 22, Ezekiel 36 doesn't help me. (laughs) Ezekiel 38, excuse me, starting with verse 19, ready? And in my zeal and my blazing wrath, so listen to the Jews listening to the king who's gonna come. In my zeal and my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. Listen to this. Mountains will also be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. And I shall call for a sword against him, this evil world leader, against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him. And I shall reign on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain of hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I, the king, I shall magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they shall know that I 
am the Lord. Whoa. Can you see how the people would have, who had overrun and oppressed them, and they had been oppressed by these people ever since Egypt, can you see how they would receive that message and say, yea, God, come get them. Come blow them away, God. I can hardly wait for the king to come. Prophet after prophet talked of this day of the Lord. So God's people yearned for the coming of the king, and for many centuries they, they cried out saying, Lord, why do you delay? Why don't you come back and defeat our enemies now and vindicate us, Lord? We're your people. So as we look back at Israel, it's easy to say, well, they, they missed it. They, they didn't realize that apart from their king coming first in mercy the first time, if he came like he's going to come the second time, then everyone would have been blown away. Not just their enemies, not just the evil out there. They just missed it, right? So we're, it's easy for us to say, well, they just, and many of them are still missing it. But, but we're going to see this morning there's a significant parallel with the church. Many of our yearnings for the king to come look an awful lot like Israel's yearnings. Uh, now, do we not yearn for the day when God will come to earth in power and glory to humble the proud, to punish the wicked, to stamp out injustice? You see, the word promises there's a day coming when he will comfort the downtrodden, mend the brokenhearted, and justice will rain down, and everything, 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 church, will be set right. Do we not yearn for that day? So as we look at all the pain and suffering in the world, as we see the enemies of God arrayed against us, as we watch the incredible rise of wickedness and evil, we can easily find ourselves saying, Lord, why are you waiting to come back and conquer your enemies? Lord, is there not enough suffering and evil? Has it not gone on long enough? Lord, why don't you come and end all of the horrific atrocities in the world? Think of what's going on now. Um, it's thought that between a million and 10 million little girls and little boys a year are trafficked in sex in just the Western hemisphere. I mean, Lord, why are you waiting? Why do the oppressors gain more and more power? God, why, why have you come back yet? In fact, in fact, I find myself saying, Lord, look at Washington. Why don't you come back? Don't you? So here's the big question of the hour. Here's your blank. Write it in. Lord, why don't you come back now? It's a good question, isn't it? Why hasn't he come back? <laughs> so this morning we're going to look at the reasons why the king delays the second advent. Reason number one, you ready? Now this is a really tough concept, all right? Watch for this. It's going to be, it's really, really hard to pick up on. You ready? Reason number one, God actually has a plan, now, now, I have to stop and make fun of myself here. It amazes me how many times I've asked God, why haven't you done this and why haven't you done this? And, 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 and why haven't you fixed that situation? Lord, why have you not taken care of this problem in my life? And his answer, God doesn't speak to me. I don't, actually, I haven't found a lot of people who say that they actually hear from God that I have found matches with this very well. So God doesn't speak to me, but um, through his word, you know what God always tells me when I ask him things like that? He says, hello, Dan. Um, the reason why not yet is because I have a plan. Um, and you probably, if, since I've taught here for 
four or five years intermittently, you probably know that um, God only has one timeline. Here it is, God's only timeline, write it in. He only does things in the fullness of time. He has no other pace, that's it, and it drives me nuts. He never changes, he never hurries, and he never, ever seems to pay attention to my needed timing. Any other witnesses to that? It's like he doesn't care when I want him to intervene. It's almost like he makes a point. I don't care, Dan, when you want me to intervene. So why hasn't the father sent his son back yet? It's a highly complex theological concept because God has a plan and it's perfect. Every second of its timing is perfect. Reason number two, why does he delay? God isn't done saving people yet. Now to be sure, there's a day coming when the Lord's long suffering will give way to his righteous judgment. Look at one of the classic day of the Lord passages. Listen to this. This should make all of us think very seriously about that day. Look at this. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But as true as this is about the sure coming judgment, Listen to God's attitude about it. You may know it from 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at it. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Lord, why haven't you come back yet? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know what? What I call slowness is God's beautiful long-suffering and patience. I would have already blown the world away. How about you? Because I think so highly of myself, and I think there's so many about them that Jesus needs to just come back and, and just take them out. It's called patience from his perspective. Hmm, now, this is, this is mind-boggling. You ready for this? Look at your next blank. Why is the Lord waiting to come back and set things right? Look at this, because today, if the missiologists are right, I want you to think about this. Today on the planet Earth, there are 10,000 converts per hour coming to Christ. Can you imagine it? It's incredible to think about. You, you, we are, when we woke up this morning, there were a quarter of a million more followers of Jesus than when we woke up yesterday morning. This is the greatest revival in the history of the world. We're in a pocket where it looks like all is lost and all the ground is fallow, but the greatest harvest in the history of the world is going on right now, and because my toe hurts, I want Jesus to stop it. Come back, Lord, fix my suffering, and take out your enemies. He's saving the world. In fact, you ready for this? The human birth rate is enormous, right? We hear it about all the time. The doomsdayers say, wow, we gotta stop, you know, gotta stop having babies. Okay, but are you ready for this? Look at this, the new birth rate. The number of disciples is growing three and a half times faster than the world's population. 
This is a great time in the kingdom of God. Open our eyes. He's not done saving yet. Reason number three, why does he delay? Because Jesus wants to show us as much grace, excuse me, Jesus wants to show as much grace to others as he showed to us. Kind of annoying, isn't it? (laughs) Think about this. He wants to show as much grace to others as he showed to me. One thing that's important to do when we're thinking about the theology and the thinking about doctrine is ask ourselves, what do our beliefs actually mean at a person-by-person level all around the world, not just me? You ready for this? Here's an important personal question. What if Jesus had come back before you were saved? What if he'd answered all the whiny questions from the Christians that were, before you were saved, you're saying, Jesus, just come back now and blow them all away. He would have blown me away and he'd have blown you away too. Oh, Lord. Now, this is not to say that we're not supposed to yearn for the return of our bride, groom, right? Allie did a great job of that last. Yes, we should be yearning for him, but for the right reason. Aren't you glad he didn't come back? right before you came to him? Are you glad he delayed for you? Are you glad what other people called slowness was patience to God? Wow. You see, sometimes God has to judge. Sometimes God has to punish. But at his essence, God is not judge. At his essence, he is savior. He is redeemer. At his essence, he saves. So let me give you a biblical example of, of um, this, this issue of, come on, Lord, I mean, we've been oppressed and we're, we've got this going on and Lord, would you just come back and set everything right? I wanna give a great biblical example. Most of you know that the Samaritans came from the 10 northern tribes that split off from David. They didn't follow, they weren't true to the Davidic dynasty, so they're renegade kingdom. And Judah and Benjamin, called Judah, um, from which the word Jews came, they, were, um, they stayed pure, they stayed pure, true to the Davidic dynasty, all 20 of their kings, all in the line of David. And they had great revivals, and eight of the 20 kings were great kings, um, or at least good kings, five of them were great kings. And so they had this feeling about those northern Samaritans from Samaria was their capital, from Samaria. They had this idea um, about them. They were, they, unlike being real Israelites, they called them dogs, They were illegitimate. They weren't real followers of God. They weren't God's people. So turn with me to Luke chapter nine. Luke is the third gospel. So head back, find Matthew, and you're almost there. Luke chapter nine. And um, so here are the Samaritans. um, Are And uh, Jesus comes to a point where he's gonna go through Samaria. Chapter nine, verse 51. Luke chapter nine, verse 51. And it came about, the days were approaching, Uh, for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went, entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Now look at this, what they do to the king, the the Messiah. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, this was not a good day. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? See, they were addicted to this new power that they had. 
They'd, done, they'd been healing people and all this kind of stuff, and now their Jesus was getting dissed. So they were going to protect him. And the way they were going to do it was they were going to call down the fire. Unfortunately, this attitude has not gone away after James and John in the church. Um, we easily join in the call for the fire to fall on all those sinners out there. So we easily jo- join them in saying, come on, Jesus, that's right, blow them away. Look at this, it's a, had, a sad, here's your blank, a sad historical tendency of God's people. It's easy to relish the prophecies about the destruction of the wicked. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. The kind of wickedness and evil going on in the world is like we've never seen before. It's real. It's terrifying. It is horrific. We should care. We should be angry. But look at the striking contrast to Jesus' attitude. Look at verse 54 again. Then when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Wow. Isn't he amazing? Think of the setting. He's the creator of the universe. He's been disrespected and rejected by the Samaritans, and yet he had, here it is, write this in, an absolutely unwavering mission. Nothing got him off this, not even somebody trying to hurt his feelings, even when his followers were focused on the wicked getting their due. Jesus always focused on their salvation, always, always focused on their salvation. Oh my, his ways are so much higher than James and John's, and they're so much higher than mine. It's ever the tendency to find ourselves looking around at a lost world and saying, yeah, you may be having your heyday now. Yeah, enjoy yourself now, but you're gonna get what's coming to you, just you wait. Now, maybe I'm the only person that's that bad. Or maybe I'm just honest about what the church can often look like. So if you take a step back and look honestly at the disciples and ourselves, it's not difficult to identify This is a lousy attitude, right? But if all that we learn from Jesus' rebuke is that we got a bad attitude, we've missed a really, really important thing, and here it is. It's a key concept. Write it in. The disciples' bad attitude was actually a reflection of a profound blindness about their own spiritual state. Now, pay attention They missed a huge implication of why Jesus didn't give the Samaritans what was coming to them that day, why he didn't allow the fire to fall. To understand what they were missing, let's look at one of the Jesus' parables. Turn back two two books to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, isn't it? Matthew 13, that's right, where he's got this series of parables about the kingdom. And this is remarkable. Look at this parable. I don't know if you, it's it's pretty subtle it uh, doesn't get taught or preached on very often, but uh, within this is a, uh, is a horrifying implication. <laughs> Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who has sowed good seed in his field, but while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares, or weeds, right? Sowed tares among the wheat and went away. 
But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? How does, this, how does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, look at this, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. It's not the fullness of time yet. Look what happens if they want him to come back early and it's not the fullness of time. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, the second advent, right? And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. So let's connect the theology of this parable to the blindness of James and John, right? When you let it soak in, think about this. Here's the disciples' cluelessness. Write it in. When they were calling for the destruction of the Samaritans, listen, church, when they were calling for the destruction of the Samaritans, they were unknowingly calling for their own destruction. They were saying, yank out the tares, get rid of them and burn them up. But they didn't realize that if the king uprooted the tares at the wrong time, guess what? All the wheat gets destroyed as well. Oh my, look at the blindness of God's people. It's easy to assume that the coming judgment of God will be for, are you ready for this? All those sinners out there, isn't it? That's what the judgment's gonna be for. All those sinners out there, here's God's children longing for the day of the Lord to come and they looked around and said, come on God, give those pagans what's coming to them, bring it on, bring on the day of the Lord. What they didn't realize was, if the day of the Lord judgment came when they were calling for it, they were toast. Wow. And notice one more thing. The very fact that they even asked the question of whether they should call down fire on other people actually showed that they weren't ready for the fire to fall themselves. Oh, Lord, help us. And this biblical understanding gives us one of the most important answers to the question of why God hasn't sent Jesus back and you may have never had this thought. Now that of course should make you worry. I'm neither ordained nor theologically trained and if you've never heard this thought before, uh, you know, better ask Pastor Kurt if it's right. But um, notice this, an astounding truth. You ready? Write it in. While God isn't done saving the unsaved yet, well, the, obviously, He's saving, saving a million of them in the next four days he'll save, right? While God isn't done saving the unsaved yet, guess what? He's not done saving the saved yet either. Let's not miss it, church. Not only is he not done with them, he's not done with us. You see, this actually flows right out of the theology of the concept that in the fullness of time, he will conform us into the image of his son. And we are not, since he hasn't come back yet, if we're still breathing, we have not yet allowed him to more fully, to most fully for our lives, live into his son's purity and mercy and godliness. We have not allowed the Holy Spirit to have us fully prepared for the day. And some, one more thing that we need to look from, at the disciples' attitude about the Samaritans, look at this, it's a wake-up call, here's your blanks. 
It's a wake-up call for believers. I'm not ready for Jesus to come back until I fully recognize that it's only grace, church. It's only grace. It's only grace that will prevent my destruction when the fire finally falls. Jesus really only had a problem with one group of people. He didn't have the problem with people whose sin separated them from God. He had a problem with people whose righteousness separated them from God. Listen, church. Today and tomorrow and until Jesus returns or we stop breathing, every day and in eternity, you know the one imperfection in all of eternity? The scars in Jesus' body. His resurrected body will have the scars in eternity because we will still need grace. It will all be of grace. So application, here you go, ready? The biblical model of a truly saved person looks like. The biblical model of what a truly saved person looks like is a big surprise to many believers. All right, so think about what we've learned. So I want us to recognize the huge portions of the church that have made a big theological error about what it means to be ready for Jesus to come back. So when we're talking about what it means to be alert and ready, as we should, the church emphasizes this means allowing the Holy Spirit to so fill us that we live a pure life. It is true, of course. The, the word couldn't be clearer. Listen, folks, listen right now, everyone. Without holiness, no one will see God. It's not our holiness. It's as we die and his spirit fills us and brings us to new life and lives Jesus' holiness in us. But be, don't be deceived. No one will see God without holiness. But this teaching can become imbalanced, and this is one of the reasons why it's so easy for some of us in the church to find ourselves announcing judgment on others. And in a minute, we'll turn to a biblical picture of the day of the Lord, when God will send fire on the earth at the end of time. But before we look there, I want us to look at a really surprising biblical truth. If you've heard me teach for very long, you've heard this from before. It comes from Romans 4, but it's an important understanding for the passage we'll look at in Genesis. Notice, in this passage, Paul is talking about what it means to be saved by faith, and he gives the example in all of biblical history, it gives the example of justification by faith. And guess what? It's not Noah, it's not Enoch, who was apparently walked with God so righteously that God just took him. It's not any of those guys, right? It's not, it's not David, it's not Josiah. Sorry, bud. Um, but but it's, it's not Daniel either, right? Okay, guess who it is? It's amazing, write it in, the salvation hero of Romans 4, the biblical model for salvation is Abraham. Yeah, old schmuck Abraham. Let his wife go into another man's harem because he was afraid. This is so mysterious, isn't it? Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 18. Every time I turn to Genesis, I think of God's saving grace because Pastor Kurt told me the first time I met him, we talked about his, 
his uh, salvation story and he said, I thought Genesis was the name of a rock band when I got saved. That, now that's getting saved from, I mean, wow. All right, look at this. This is, this is you'll know this story. Sodom is a horrific city. It is, um, it's utterly godless. It's godless in every way and it's time for it to be destroyed. And this, Jesus tells us in the Olivet Discourse, is a picture of the last day of the second advent. So it's in Genesis, but this is a picture looking forward to what it will be like on the last judgment day. Okay, so here we go, verse 22. Then the men turned from there, this was the angels, they, they interpreted them as men, but they were angels, and they went towards Sodom while Abraham was standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is Abraham talking to God. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare the, the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? This is amazing. Watch this. He's walked with God, so he knows God's nature. He knows like, un, unlike himself in his imperfection and his sin and his brokenness and his need for faith. God is perfect, and yet this is what he knows about God. Look at this. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Isn't it amazing how when you really know God, you can actually expect that God will act consistent with his nature. Amazing. Look at this. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, will, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God said, I will not destroy it on account of 10. Look at this, this is remarkable to me. The father of the faith, the one who's the biblical model for the saved person, wasn't standing in the picket line calling down fire. Here's your blank, I think it's your last one. What did the model of salvation do? He interceded for the deliverance of those who deserved destruction. Think of that. The, the role model of salvation. His role was to beg God for mercy. His role was to show the rest of the world what the person with the greatest faith looks like. It's the one that you find asking God for the deliverance of sinners. Now recall James and John. <laughs> Could there be any more dramatic picture between the two fire falling stories, calling it down and begging that it won't come. Wow, what a contrast. So let me ask you a question. How much does the church today look like Abraham and how much do we look like James and John? Can God find any Abrahams in his church? 
Here's what really convicts me about this story. Abraham actually cared about lost people. Listen, church. James and John had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, every day. And they were way more worried about his reputation than they were about people getting saved. Dotted line, they were way more worried about their reputation than seeing people get saved. Here's Abraham, he looks past the abominations, he looks past the evil, and he begs God to save them. He was desperate to save those who deserve destruction. What a challenging picture. Listen to this and include it now in your understanding of what holiness means in Scripture. The evidence of God's highest calling is when believers are so humble and their hearts are so broken and their spirits are so contrite that they cry out to God to save the wicked. High Christ-likeness. So as we prepare to respond, I want to speak to two kinds of people. Uh, First, some here this morning have never really given your life to Christ. You may have taken a run at it, but you haven't really completely listened to John's message. Repent. Repent. Turn around. Let the Holy Spirit save you and change you. Change you. To you, the word is very clear. Listen, there is a day coming when Christ will return in power. He will. And he'll descend to judge everyone who hasn't responded to his grace. And that day will come like a thief in the night. So don't be deceived. Only the fool hears the gospel and ignores it or thinks that they'll have a chance to respond later for folks The thief may come before your later is. Wake up. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not even this evening. Now it's the day of salvation. Repent and give your heart to Christ. But there are also a lot of believers here this morning, and I suspect that some of us have sometimes found ourselves in the James and John camp the camp where identifying other people's sin comes really naturally. In fact, maybe it's even your gift to the world. Identifying other people's sin. See, we can hone that skill really well, can't we? And in our culture with ever-increasing wickedness, it's easy to look around and see people who deserve God's judgment, but this morning, maybe for the first time, you've heard that the biblical understanding of what it means to be holy doesn't just include moral purity. It does, but not just that. Holiness also includes rejecting our prideful attitudes, looking for them everywhere we find them, and saying, oh God, forgive me for your grace has saved me and saved me from my pride. Save me from my pride. This morning, the word has shown us that God is looking for followers who've come to the point where they lay no claim to their own righteousness. Listen, church. When a person comes to this level of holiness, they completely stop pointing fingers at everyone else. They're no longer impressed with what they've done for God. They're no longer impressed with their holiness. In fact, when they think about the evil people around them, what enters their heart isn't self-righteousness or a desire for God's judgment to fall. You know what enters the heart of the truly holy? 
What enters their heart is a profound sense of grief for those who are living apart from Christ. When a person comes to this point, rather than casting scorn upon sinners, they travail for the wicked, they weep for the lost, they mourn for those who are living in darkness. As we often do this morning, since this is really a congregational response, I suspect none of us are unscathed, believers and unbelievers this morning, but if you can physically, turn around and kneel at your, at your place. Just turn around and kneel right where you are. As you're kneeling, uh, some of you are thinking, wow, I sure wish that that person would have been here to hear this message because it's really for them. Wipe that thought out. Right now, be brutally honest with yourself, just you and the Lord. First, if you haven't given your life completely to Jesus, it's time. Don't wait any longer. The Father is delaying for you. But listen, if you don't know Jesus, we have no idea how much longer he'll delay. And in fact, Jesus could come back today. And now I'd like to ask the believers a question. Who do you look more like? James and John? or Abraham? Do you find yourself in the blow them away camp? Or do you find yourself standing in the gap, desperately trying to bring mercy and grace to those who need it most? This morning we've seen real biblical holiness. We've seen that it means to be truly ready for Jesus to return means that real Christ-likeness is having a heart for the lost. So in this quiet moment, as the worship team sings, let's allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse us from our pride and to give us a heart that breaks for lost people. May he even bring people to our minds that we have been, if not downright prideful about, we, we might even have really kind of just given up on them. May he break our hearts for them. Let's ask the Spirit to empower us to go to the world with the gospel, to live it out, and to bring grace, mercy, and truth to those who need Jesus. Pastor Josiah, sing quietly for us. What have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused in absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. Much to make sense of it all. I know that your love breaks my fall Oh, the scandal of grace 
You died in my place, so my soul will live. Oh, to be like you, to give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you. Forever the hope in I'd be lost, I'd be lost without you Now I'm found singing your praise I'd be lost, I'd be lost, I'd be lost without you Jesus Let's stand together This is great for every one of us to sing. Not a single person came in here today that this is not true about. So, hopefully with our hearts purified, if you came in not knowing Jesus, having given your heart to him, the Spirit of God now lives in you. And for all of those who already have the Spirit and already know him, hopefully a recentering a rejection of our pride and remembering the difference between all of them out there and me isn't me, it's God's grace. Let's sing, church.